You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience. This is your frogman with the frog voice, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house. And I'm actually recording at night here, which is unusual for me, uh, late Wednesday night. Because I'm scared that by the morning I won't have a voice left. And it's usually really bad in the morning if I have a cold. So uh, this is one of three end-of-week podcasts. So we're going to have a total of five this week. Very exciting. Again, sorry about the voice. It is what it is. (laughs) Nothing I can do, but we keep plowing on here. And there is so much going on. So we're going to have two interviews this week just so you're keeping track here. Um, this this show is episode 338. A lot to talk about. And I wanted to get it out before we spend most of the remainder of the week with two interviews, episode 339 and 340 coming up. We're going to have interviews with Steve Dace on his new book. And we're going to have a very exciting interview with the head of Border Patrol during Obama's last year in office and get his insight on what's going on. But for now, I really wanted to go over some surreal things taking place. And the juxtaposition of what is going on shows amazing lessons. When you look at what is going on overseas and you juxtapose it security and defense-wise to what is going on in our own country security-wise with immigration, it is astounding how backwards our national defense priorities are. I haven't even published this yet at the time of this recording. Our copy editor wasn't in this afternoon, so I got to wait till till, uh, till till tomorrow. But if you hear this before the article, you'll be the first to hear about this. I was just putting the finishing touches on my article on Syria, explaining the stupidity of our soldiers dying in Syria for nothing, no good reason whatsoever. No security concern. If anything, our security problem is only being there while we have our homeland open. And then, of course, as we're recording now, you have the news that another Islamist was arrested by the FBI in Atlanta for a major plot that he wanted to blow up the White House, a number of uh, federal buildings in D.C. Now, it doesn't seem like he was far along in this plot. But this is a 21-year-old Hashar Jalal Taheb. Now, as of this recording, and if I find out (coughs) throughout the show, I'll, I'll let you know, we do not have his immigration status. But I could tell you, unless it is a convert... And usually they go by their American-sounding names, usually, not always. This is likely either an immigrant or from an immigrant family, relatively recently, that we brought in from the Middle East. We put our boots on their shores, and we put their boots on our shores. 
we die on the sword of jihad caught in the crosshairs of alligators and sharks overseas with no mission whatsoever while we then bring the jihad to our shores. He didn't come here with an army. This was unlikely an ISIS command and control attack. They say he wanted to go and fight for them overseas, but but that's different from saying that this was in, that this was even inspired by them, much less commanded by them. It's a random Islamic attack of any Sharia adherent that we bring in will pose this sort of danger to us. That is the reality. That is the reality. So let's unpack some of this going on here. Earlier today, and this will be, you know, obviously a day before by the time you get this on Thursday, we heard the tragic news from Syria that we lost another four Americans, two of them active duty soldiers. Um, I haven't seen the names yet. Or if there are special operators, it wouldn't surprise me if there are special operators, which those are even harder to replace, obviously. And uh, two defense contractors, civilian contractors. And three other soldiers were injured in a suicide bombing in Manjib. Okay? <coughs> I'm sorry for all the coughing and sniffling. Um, I just feel like I got to get this out as long as my voice lasts. So everything that took place here represents what we have been talking about with our aimless priorities in the Middle East. And, and you know what? I'm glad to hear that President Trump is holding strong with his commitment to pull out of both Syria and Afghanistan because frankly, it's the same story. What is Manjib? What's the story here? So let's back up to understand what's going on in Syria. Okay? We don't have a mission. We don't have a strategic interest. We don't have a strategy. And we don't have a defensive position. The only thing worse than sending our troops overseas to die without him. I'm sorry. The only thing worse than not having a strategic mission in the Middle East is to send our soldiers in harm's way without such a mission. You see, I've said this before in the abstract so much, but I think... Now we could use this particular example as the most vivid illustration of what we've been talking about. Jordan Schachtel and I on our Foreign Policy Fridays understanding what it, it means to be a true hawk and a fake hawk. What it means to actually put America first. And one of the things we talk about is when you have a military, you can have the best military in the world. But a military only works for strike and maneuver. You get in and you get out. You hit and run. But if you're trying to hold an enemy territory with multiple warring factions, that's a very different story. There's only two things that could work. A relentless strike and maneuver style offensive 
or you have a strategic defensive position where you're in a forward oper- you're you're operating from behind a forward oper- operating base you have strategic outposts combat outposts around it with not just air power but but field based artillery to back you up and you kind of hit and run and strike and maneuver at least from there that's another way of doing it what what's happening in syria and what's happening in afghanistan is we have a tiny number of troops relatively a few thousand 2000 in syria officially it might be a little bit more unofficially 12 14 15000 in afghanistan flung out isolated from each other in small groups precariously flung out in urban areas where the lines between civilians and militants are blurred and you know that's an old story the civilians in the arab world multiple tribal factions and you have teams of 12 15 people very nervously walking through alleyways in a marketplace in an urban area you could have the strongest best army ever it doesn't matter that's untenable and then now with the advent of suicide bombers it's even more untenable so what happened here is this is very important for a number of reasons manjib is at the crossroads it's not in the far northeast it's more northwest it's far away from where the kurds could really hold ground is a lot of sunnis there but it's also right at the border of assad where assad's forces are and where turkish forces are so this is literally the the sewage tank that we always talk about with sharks, snakes, scorpions, alligators in it, right at that point, the Kurds can't hold it. We can't hold it for them. These guys, and it's terrible, the the bombing, you, you see the explosion on video. These guys were on foot patrol, very few of them, flung out, not in a defensive position or in an offensive combat strike and maneuver position. So there's one thing if you're like plowing forward, you shoot at everything that's in your way and you know, you could prevent yourself from getting killed that way. But here you're no, you you know, they're officially 99% officially civilians. So you can't shoot at anything. A guy comes up in civilian garb and he has a suicide vest under him and blows himself up. Four Americans dead, two of them soldiers, two of them contractors, three of them injured. Not sure the extent of it. How could you ask your son to die for something like that? I'm not even getting into why we're there and what we hope to accomplish. Just strategically, it's untenable. This is what nobody's talking about. Just makes no sense. No sense whatsoever. Drives me absolutely insane. It's so sad. And yet, none of these people that bashed Trump for pulling out and he didn't even pull out yet, none of them are willing to answer the questions of how are you going to prevent this? Why are we there? Instead, they have the hubris. They're writing these columns. See, this was because we're acting weak. Has nothing to do with acting weak and the perception we're going to pull out. Let's say we announce tomorrow, okay, we're going to keep 2,000 troops in there. 
not a hundred thousand, but two thousand indefinitely. Could that stop a suicide bomber where there's an unlimited supply of them in a so-called civilian area in an alleyway in an urban marketplace from blowing up a 12-man patrol? But those who oppose a pullout, they will not tell us their detailed plan. Which ground do they plan to hold? On behalf of whom? In what sustainable way? Why is it in our interests? They have an obligation to divulge to us. Why, even to the extent there is something you want to accomplish, why it can't be accomplished through effective soft power. Sanctions on Iran and Turkey and Qatar. Standing deterrent of strike and maneuver. And most importantly, focusing on our own homeland. The border, visas, domestic counter-terror, counter-terror finance. Against the terrorists we already stupidly let in our country. Like this guy that evidently was planning an attack on our federal facilities and landmarks in D.C. No one will tell you that. And what I mean by strike and maneuver is, you know, we do have our naval fleets, our aircraft carriers in the Persian Gulf and the Mediterranean. I still believe in keeping them there for strike and maneuver. Let me bring this point home in a way that I don't think anyone has. Let me ask you this question. When was the last time an Israeli soldier died fighting in a foreign country? Really? Tell me. It's been a heck of a long time. You're going to have a hard time finding. Now, Gaza is different because that was really a part of Israel, and that's on literally their border, and they're attacking them from there. So that's an invasion. So if they died, that was you know rightfully repelling an invasion. Lebanon is the same story. They invaded ten years ago, and you know have intermittent incursions. But just one little nook over Syria, which is still technically on their border. How many Israeli soldiers have died in Syria? Zero. You know why? Because Israel doesn't die on the sword of Islam. Israel doesn't engage in the reverse patent, dying for the other SOB's ideology. Israel doesn't engage in the worst form of social work in a combat zone. You know, I criticized Clinton in the 90s. You know, I was so appalled by him using our military very often for um, like the humanitarian stuff and this and that. But this is even worse because we're doing the social work but in a war zone, we're not, you know, Daniel, Daniel, are you against war? Actually, I love war when it's in our interest. We're not doing war. This is not warfare. We're doing social work in a war zone. The most precarious, indefensible situation. Israel does strike and maneuver. They go in, they go out, they bomb, and they leave. If you have a five-way civil war on their front, all of them hate Israel, but they're fighting each other. If anyone gets too close, particularly the IRGC, they're going to zap them. If they, um, if it's if it's Nusra and one of the Sunni insurgents, they'll do the same thing. But the remainder of the time, they will do what I called for in 2013, letting Allah sort out the Syrian civil war. If it's good enough for Israel when it's on their border. Isn't it good enough 
for America halfway around the world. I just don't understand it. I don't understand it. As I, as I note in this piece, we've admitted over 2.2 million immigrants from 47 predominantly Muslim countries since 9-11. Roughly 150,000 foreign students per year from the same countries. We've admitted 21,000 refugees from Syria, 98.4% of them being Muslim. Now, thankfully, Trump has shut that down, at least the Syria hasn't shut down the Afghani migration in most other countries, but Syria he has. Think about it. What, what is a bigger danger, not having a few thousand troops in the jaws of a Syrian civil war or bringing 21,000 Syrians to our shores? I, I don't understand how these same people think that it's it's in our security. Somehow, if we don't fight them there, they'll come here. But we're not even fighting them. And who's the them? Because there's multiple factions fighting each other, and we're helping one over the other. And then we bring them here, and these same so-called security hawks don't have a problem. <laughs> Okay, do you understand? We bring in about forty to fifty-five thousand foreign students from Saudi Arabia every year. Do you know that the Oregonian, right, the big Oregon paper, they did a an investigation. Just in their state, they find found five male Saudi students that were charged with rape, child porn, or hit and run. Uh, traffic accidents in the state of Oregon and they absconded they posted bail and absconded in four out of the five cases the Saudi government stepped in to help posting large sums of money for bail and possibly underwriting legal fees you know what's funny you have this bipartisan industry bashing MBS and the Saudi government over Khashoggi but if you want to talk about the one beef we should have with Saudi Arabia it's the immigration, the Saudi students, the King Abdullah scholarship, and the fact that they're evidently underwriting bail for these bad dudes. But no one says anything about that because the media didn't tell anyone. So these thumb-sucking, phony conservative writers don't know about it if, uh, if they didn't read about it. Well, I guess this is local media, but they're not going to know. Which leads me to another thing, the visa overstays. The liberals want to talk about visa overstays now because they don't want to talk about the wall. All right, why don't we have exit entry tracking? Why aren't we going? Why aren't we empowering ICE to go after them? Oh, whoops! And we're going to get to this later on in the show. Every time ICE wants to deport someone, there's ten years of litigation. Sixty-eight thousand foreign students overstayed their visas in fiscal year 2017, according to DHS. I looked at just a couple, glanced at a couple countries. 4,630 Saudis, almost 5,000 Saudis, overstayed their visas in one year. 1,253 Turks, 649 Egyptians, 350 Iranians, and 373 Iraqis. These are just the critical countries that I looked at. And then, like I said, there's the whole terror finance Hezbollah operating hundreds of used car lots on our shores, 
You have the Ali Karani trial, which exposes his Hezbollah Unit 910, where he was given a green... This guy was from a family that's dubbed the Bin Ladens of Hezbollah in Lebanon and was given a green card in 2003, right after 9-11. Then he was caught surveilling Jewish businesses on behalf of Hezbollah. The trial is going to be in March. We had another Unit 910 guy, Mohammed Karani, or Mahmoud Karani, no relation, I don't think, to Ali Karani, but also a Lebanese Hezbollah guy, came in through our border in 2001. He was convicted of being a fighter recruiter and fundraiser for them. Folks, this is the issue. Nothing we do overseas is going to stop this. You have to stop letting in the new ones and marshal every source, and you got to rebuild the collaboration of the dumpster fire FBI working with ICE, HSI, DEA. I don't know why we need all these organizations. They should really merge into one all under the Department of Justice and abolish the DHS like it was before. It's it's an FBI issue. It's a domestic counter-terror issue. It's not a military problem. And there's no military solution to that. It's self-immolation of a nation. Just like with our border and immigration from Latin America and MS-13. It's the same thing with Islamic immigration. You know, people want to talk about how, um, oh, we have, we have a attempted ISIS attack with this guy in Atlanta. It's not really an ISIS attack. Everyone's into ISIS. ISIS doesn't have a command and control. Hezbollah's the problem in terms of that. I, the Sunni stuff can't, Sunnis can't hurt us. Most of their governments are actually turning better now. It's all over there. It's only if we let them in through immigration. It's the visas and it's the border. And for those, unfortunately, we let in a boatload of these people. So now, now I mean, it's. But it is what it is. I mean, you you got to deal with that with Homeland Security counterterrorism policy. Going over every inch of Syria ain't going to help you with that. This is the latest from Washington Times. A Muslim residing in Georgia was arrested Wednesday on suspicion of planning a jihad attack on the White House. Other high profile, other high profile national targets and at least one Jewish site in the nation's capital. And by the way, this is an interesting thing. If you notice. Jews are the big target of this. So any any little on the verge of profanity here, but any any uh, schmuck, so you could always curse in Yiddish, um, that wants to tell you that, oh, it's a Jewish value to accept open borders. The first targets of this, as we've learned in Europe, will be Jews. Jewish sites, military targets, and national symbols. Anyway, Hashar Jalatab was taken in, in after a year-long FBI sting operation that grew out of local authorities' fear that the 21-year-old coming resident had become radicalized, changed his name, and made plans to travel abroad. Now, um, you know, I don't, I don't know the rest of the story here, but you know, we'll find out and good for these people, good for the locals for, for standing up to this. 
that's the story. <clears throat> and evidently, this is a you know an attack where uh, a sting operation where the FBI attempted to sell him weapons, and that's how they got him. Mr. Taheb told the informant that jihad was the best deed in Islam in the peak of Islam. And it was not complicated at all to do jihad today. See, I ask you how many of those, how many people agree to that sentiment? See, don't ask me, oh, how many terrorists are we letting in the country? Well, that's a stupid term because terrorism is a tactic. How many Sharia supremacists are we bringing into the country? So that's the story with that. But we're, we're going to try to find out more information here as time goes on. But, I mean, it's just astounding at how we just keep our borders opened, bring in endless immigration, and precisely because of these so-called wars, we feel guilty. And then, oh, people help us. We have people who help us, Syrians who help us, Iraqis who help us, Afghanis who help us. So we feel like we have to bring them in. We have all these problems. There is no way to sort out who who in the future will get radicalized when you bring in this many over such a short period of time. It's the same thing we said with the MS-13 problems from Latin America. It doesn't have the religious component to it, the jihad, so it's not is dangerous in that sense, but it's the same problem. When you bring in hundreds of thousands of young males from a very violent culture, homogenous culture, in Central America, you're not necessarily going to be able to vet, oh, do you, uh, did you have ties to, to MS-13? They could be 14, 15, 16 years old and might not even have done anything, but they're vulnerable to that. You bring them in, they cluster in these neighborhoods in large numbers. This is the problem. I mean, everyone knows this. Everyone in law enforcement knows this. It's the same thing with when you bring in the Middle Easterners in such large numbers. It's amazing that we have Europe as the canary in the coal mine. We just refuse to understand the stakes. So there we have it. So unbelievable. So, so, so unbelievable. And what's also so sad, we're still giving aid to Lebanon, aka Hezbollah. We're still doing it. See, this is what I don't understand. They're like, Daniel, we can't pull out. It's going to empower Hezbollah. But then none of these people are like, okay, could we stop giving money to Hezbollah? This is from um, Al Monitor, January 3rd. It's a week old, two weeks old. The Donald Trump administration is providing the Lebanese army with more than $100 million in upgrades to tanks and attack helicopters in the latest U.S. effort to stem the influence of Iran-backed Hezbollah. <laughs> um, the package includes training for pilots, maintenance crew on MD-530G light scout attack helicopters provided by the Pentagon, as well as laser-guided rockets, according to DOD records obtained under a FOIA request. 
um, you know, the Israeli the former Israeli defense minister said, "Dude, th- this is a uh, this is going directly to Hezbollah." So, you know, that's a whole other story. But we are so messed up, and there's there's nobody, nobody giving a vision. I, I said this all the time. See, j- j- just to get back to war authorization, I just want to talk to you a little bit about my view on authorization of use of military force, congressional buy-in, and how do you how does that you know coincide with modern warfare? So obviously, you know, obviously. When it comes to uh, the real authentic constitutional view, it's very clear that any offensive expeditionary, as it was understood at you know at the time of of our founding, that's how George Washington put it. That would need a declaration of war from Congress. The president cannot just unilaterally do that. He controls the troop movements once you have the authorization. He's commander-in-chief, but president cannot. President can only act unilaterally very swiftly when it's a defensive movement. Right? This is why the delegates to the Constitutional Convention specifically changed Article 1 powers from, quote, make war. Originally, the original draft was give Congress power to make war to declare to declare war. They changed it to the word declare. Obviously, they wanted the president to implement the direction of the war. That's why, you know, they didn't want Congress to make war. But clearly, as Madison said, there's the fundamental doctrine of the Constitution that the power to declare war is fully and exclusively vested in the legislature. The problem arises, obviously, that in modern warfare with modern movement, transportation, and communication, Something really goes down. We need to strike it. We don't have time for a congressional debate. So my my idea was to propose an AUMF. And, and this, is, this is very generous. I think we should all agree to something like this. That authorizes any president, Republican or Democrat, let's not make this partisan, any offensive actions around the globe where boots are on the ground for less than 30 days. Okay. In this respect, it's even more open than than what others were pro- pro- many others were proposing. This will give the president the flexibility to immediately respond or preempt any threat he deems imminent. But if we're going to keep troops on the ground for longer than 30 days, by definition, that's a can of worms that requires national buy-in and a serious debate over the nature of the threat an assessment of whether investment is worthwhile, and an understanding of the players in the theater. That's Syria, that's Afghanistan, that's all this stuff. There's something there we need to blow up, we need to come in and surgical strike, air. So so I, I would say anything in the air, and even ground troops for 30 days, that would be a start. If, if we limit only that type of stuff to end runs around Congress. But more than that, in an endless ground presence, my gosh. By definition, that's not a strike and maneuver. 
That's nation building. So then it might be appropriate, but we really got to see that. And again, I'm just getting back to our work on the cartels. If this is what we're investing and dying for in Syria, imagine if over the last 20 years, we would have spent a fraction of the lies and money liquidating every single cartel member in Mexico and using all of our oh, work with our allies and, and weaponizing these phony groups in the Middle East. We would have helped the Mexican government. Imagine what that would have done. You know, there's the latest news out of the out of the trial in um, for El, El, El Chapo in New York is that El Chapo, the head of the Sinaloa cartel, former head of it, it turns out that that he basically bought off the former Mexican president. He gave him a hundred million dollars allegedly. And you know, it's easy to say, yeah, what a dirtbag that guy is. But you know what? You have to put yourself in the shoes of the Mexican government. They respond to evil and good. The forces of evil predominate. The cartels is that's where it's at. They got they they have the power. They're scared of it. And this is true of every Latin American country. The only force for good is going to be America. Not only aren't we a force for good, we we telegraph the message, particularly you know when he this guy was president of Mexico, it was under Obama that we don't give a darn about drugs. We don't give a darn about the illegal immigration. So like. Hey, well, if the Americans aren't going to bite my head off for joining the cartels and the cartels are going to go after me for fighting them, well, I mean, what do you want him to do? So, yeah, he'll get bought off by them. It's very logical. That is the carrot and stick we need. We need to make it clear we're done with illegal immigration. We are done. We're going to deport all these people. We're going to get rid of all the magnets. We're going to seal our border and that's it. And then we're going to come after you, buddy. And then we call up the Mexican government and say, look, it's a change, a generational change. We're going to implement the Monroe Doctrine. Anyone who screws with us, we're going to destroy them. If you're with us, you'll get good things. Believe me, their attitude will change. That we need to be doing this in our hemisphere. In the Middle East, if it's something that can't be accomplished with strike and maneuver, it doesn't it most likely doesn't make sense to do it and certainly not in Syria and Afghanistan places that were never nation states to begin with and there's nothing to put together and you implement the proper deterrent you have your military there you have your navy there proper sanctions soft power right alliances and that's it but meanwhile we just bring in the threat to our shores. Which brings me to the next thing. Speaking of getting rid of all illegal immigration. What are our soldiers dying for anyway? Well, the U.S. Constitution. We don't have a constitution anymore. Our constitution doesn't apply to Americans, but it applies to the world. I want to talk to you about a case that's been festering for a decade an illegal alien for a decade, just uh, 35 or so miles west of me in Frederick, Maryland. So there's this illegal alien that just won't go away. She's aided and abetted 
by an organization called Casa de Maryland. It's literally a criminal group. Only when it comes to immigration could what's lawful be unlawful and what's unlawful be considered lawful. So you could have a group. It's like, imagine, okay, I'm uh, helping burglars and robbers of Maryland. And not only are you able to operate openly, um, you downright have the right to facilitate lawsuits against law enforcement and actually win. It is, it is truly, truly astounding. Truly astounding. Um, where do we start here? So a woman came, Roxana Orellano Santos, came from El Salvador, settled in Frederick in 2006. Now, Frederick, Maryland, for those of you who don't know, you have Central Maryland, which is the I-95 corridor, the megalopolis going from Northern Virginia, D.C., straight up through Baltimore. I live at the northern end. And it's, well, what you would expect from an East Coast megalopolis. Not very nice scenery, not so many nice people, very liberal, lots of crime, lots of taxes, and so on and so forth. But Western Maryland is actually really nice and always had low crime and it was a good place to live. Well, that is until liberals decide to move out there. It's now become almost like a, a suburb, not just of Baltimore, but of D.C. really. It's kind of a triangle between Baltimore and D.C. in the West. And a bunch of, uh, a bunch of liberals moved out there. And it's changing the politics of the entire county. And recently, you've gotten a lot of Salvadorans and other illegal aliens there. And there's a big MS-13 problem. So you have Sheriff Chuck Jenkins. You might see him on Fox News sometimes. He's the only kind of good guy you have in Maryland. And he's, despite the politics of the county really changing, um, he held on this election where many others didn't. So he's still sheriff. So anyway, he was the first and really one of the only in Maryland to participate in 287G, where you train local law enforcement in cooperating proactively with the federal authorities to ascertain those here illegally and turn them over. Now, obviously, that section, AUSC 1357G, was part of the 1996 Immigration Act that passed the Senate unanimously. It was 2008, and she was sitting on a curb, evidently eating a sandwich outside of this restaurant where she was illegally working. And by the way, since then, she's she's um, had like three American-born kids now that are erroneously considered American. So suck us dry. So this is a decade ago. And basically... A bunch of cops pull up, and I think I think they were just randomly there. But I don't know if it's that she was like dangling on the curb, looking funny, or in addition, they claim that she started kind of running from them, acting suspicious. So they come came up to her and said, "Hey, are you on your break?" And they they didn't do anything. They didn't detain her. They didn't say stop, halt. They didn't. They didn't 
do anything to her. They just start talking to her. That is a lawful interaction. And she didn't speak English. And then, you know, through the thing, you know, said, well, you know, do you have any ID? Um, and she didn't have any. And then, you know, and all, all the while, they never apprehended her. And then they got her name. They put it through the system. And it turns out she was illegal. So pursuant to the agreement through the dispatch, they now had an actionable immigration detainer, immigration warrant. So they eventually arrested her. It was only at that point, only at that point, when they had that information, they they arrested her. Anyway, there's been a 10-year lawsuit culminating with the Fourth Circuit last October. I don't know why it took that long. A 10-year lawsuit. They tried every which way, and the district judge wouldn't bite, but they got the Fourth Circuit to have a, to, to a civil cause of action against the Frederick sheriff's deputies suing them for money for violating her fourth amendment illegal search and seizure equal protection all sorts of things and she won the fourth circuit i don't know if the county is going to appeal to the supreme court frankly i don't even know if they would win given roberts and gorsuch who knows about kavanaugh <laughs> but why am I talking about this now? Because just this week, a district judge said, guess what? Oh, so anyway, so she was reporting to ICE intermittently. She That was part of the agreement to report to ICE throughout the saga. Now, I don't understand why, you know, she's an, an illegal. She needs to be deported. It's, it's evil enough to say she has a, a, a private cause of action against sheriff's deputies for ascertaining she was illegal and following the law. But even if you're going to do that, so deport her and award, give her awards overseas. But no, she gets to stay. So finally, it's over. But so ICE detains her to deport her. And Costa de Maryland comes in. They hold this whole rally. It's all political. Judges respond to rallies. They don't respond to law. And put a temporary restraining order on... ICE, that ICE cannot deport an unambiguous illegal alien because she has the right to see her lawsuit through. So now you have a concocted right to break into our country, violate our laws, then when you're lawfully apprehended for being here illegally, you could fight that for 10 years, thereby stay in the country, thereby have three anchor babies... And as such, or maybe it was two over that time, and then use that as a way of delaying your deportation, which I'm sure will be indefinitely because she's become too political. There are no words. We can talk about walls all we want, but the biggest thing is we don't make illegal immigration illegal. Not that the laws don't, the laws do. <clears throat> but we've allowed courts to do what liberals in Congress could never succeed in a generation. And no one talks about this. Now, obviously, this is unbelievable. Not only, here's the deal. 
Clarence Thomas said this in, in Arizona v. U.S. A state has the sovereign power to protect its borders more rigorously if it wishes, absent any valid federal prohibition. Scalia said, unless and until these aliens have been given the right to remain, Arizona is entitled to arrest them and at least bring them to federal officials' attention. And quite the contrary. Not only does law not prohibit it, law says 8 U.S.C. 1644 says clearly, quote, no state or local government entity may be prohibited or in any way restricted from sending to or receiving from federal immigration officials information regarding the immigration status, which these guys did. And then, of course, you have 1373C, which blatantly requires, requires the federal officials to act upon this... Um, this request. It actually requires the feds to follow up with the states. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I just, um, I don't know what to tell you. Nothing matters until this is dealt with. Nothing matters until this is dealt with. And this Fourth Amendment nonsense, they're, they're expanding it way too much with American citizens, much less anyone else, much less foreign nationals. Right? This is very clear. And even the Supreme Court has said this, although they have 50 million ways of getting out of it. But... um. There is nothing, nothing stopping states or you know or local law enforcement from from detaining someone based on reasonable suspicion that you committed a particular particular crime, including a federal crime, which includes immigration. If I have a reasonable suspicion you're here illegally, that's it. It can only become unlawful. According to Illinois v. Cabela's in um, 2005, the 2005 case, if it's, quote, a prolonged beyond the time reasonably required to complete that mission. But here, they completed it, and it was in the affirmative. So they had the right to arrest her, and that was it. Done. If during the course of a stop, an officer acquires suspicion that you committed a crime, Done. You, you can detain that person for for reasonable time in order to dispel that suspicion or confirm it. And they very easily confirmed it in a few minutes here. That's it. There's nothing to say here. And yet, 10 years, 10 years, this is still going on. And we're on the losing side of it. American people are on the, are on the losing side of it. Something that is already obvious this is the problem with the Fourth Circuit in these lower courts. It's bad enough it takes a million years to lock up or enforce the law on Americans. 
But now we've 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 lost it. Once you give aliens standing to litigate their way into status, you're done. Ten years for a single person. Forget about a wall. I mean, this is the legal wall. It doesn't matter anymore. And and the reality is, I mean, you know, they, they always say, well, your whole thing is that I'm Hispanic. So you're saying Hispanic is synonymous with violating the law. But there's one thing if someone's like, they were wrong. They got you and you're a U.S. citizen, or at least you have a legal right to be here. You're a legal immigrant. Maybe you could talk about a, 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 suing them. But if you turn out to be an illegal, they were right. There's nothing to do. It's unbelievable. But this is what we're dealing with. And could you imagine that? Based on a phony lawsuit that should never get standing, that is a violation of law, it allows her to violate another law and remain in the country and have anchor babies. This is unbelievable. There's just no words for it. No words to describe this insanity. And and folks, just before I close up here, I just want to mention one more thing about this. This Casa de Maryland, and really the courts. We are interpreting every constitutional provision and every statute stringently against Americans and leniently for aliens. Every one, every time. And it's not interpreting it leniently. It's it's just totally bastardizing it. But what it says unambiguously, we don't follow. So, for example, Casa de Maryland, I don't understand how you could aid and abet. It's section 1324. 1324A, I mean, among the many ones are subsection 2, is any person who, knowing or in reckless disregard of the fact that an alien has come to, entered, or remains in the United States in violation of law, transports or moves or attempts to transport or move such alien within the United States by means of transportation or otherwise in furtherance of such violation of law um, shall be punished you know, as a felon? Section three is anyone who, who in violation of the law conceals, harbors, or shields from detection or attempts to conceal, harbor, or shield from detection such alien in any place, including building or means of transportation, or encourages or induces an alien to come to enter or reside in the United States, knowing or in reckless disregard of the fact that such coming to entry or residence is or will be in violation of law. I just don't understand. Or aids and abets the commission of any preceding acts. I I, I don't get it. I don't get how how, how that is okay. We're we're the criminals. These sheriff's deputies in, in Frederick are the criminals. They violated laws, not her. I mean, it what? And again, our kids are 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 um Citizens, I just want to close with one thing. I'm trying to find out more information about this. But a sheriff in Arizona tipped me off on a story. He's like, hey, Daniel, I'm sure you'll be interested in this. I think he got it from National Sheriff's Association. So just just to, you know, we start out with terrorism. The contorted priorities of what we do in Syria and don't do at home to stop terrorism, national security. We went on to illegal immigration on our home front. Now we'll just talk about general crime. 
jailbreak, the First Step Act. Just like the media covers up and won't report on illegal alien crime, or they won't say a guy's a Muslim immigrant that did something, they also will never say the circumstances of a certain criminal act if it implicates their agenda. If everyone, if people would know the number of crimes that are committed by people that are released from prison, they'd be up in arms. So he told me, he said, hey, there's a guy the feds released. He doesn't, we don't have the information, I don't have the name, what he was there for, or the circumstances of his release. But just to understand how ubiquitous the criminality is of those recently released. And I'll link to the, I found the article uh, from Tuesday in Odessa, Texas, West Texas. Uh, the the local cops had a warrant. They're working with the state cops, Texas Rangers, on a warrant for drug trafficking. They parked right in front of the building or home, and boom, the guy opens up with an M4, fires like 100 rounds. Three SWAT team members were hit, one, it almost severed his it severed his femur and it almost really did him in, but he'll he'll be okay. Other another one was grazed in the leg, another one was grazed in the chin. Very, very close. No one died, but that guy was just released from federal prison. Folks, I don't know what to tell you, but we're gonna have more. The week is still young. We'll have our interviews. Let me know what you want me to ask. Mark Morgan, former head of Border Patrol, he'll be up on Friday. We're going to have Steve Dace Thursday night. Two more shows. The week is still young. Thank you for bearing with us here. My email is dharwitz at blazemedia.com. Tweet me at armconservative. God bless y'all. Have a great night. 